0: This is the 6th Sunday of Easter, and next Sunday will be the 7th Sunday of Easter, and the Sunday after that will be Pentecost. So we're coming to the end of the great 50 days. The first three or four Sundays after Easter were in the biblical readings about a meditation on the significance of the resurrection of Jesus. And since then, we have been meditating on the presence of the exalted Christ in the community of faith we call the Church, through the Spirit. So the next three weeks, we're going to be talking about the the Holy Spirit and how it operates, both in, in personal terms, but more importantly, in the community of faith we call the Church. So this morning, I'm going to preach on the readings from the book of Acts, from First Peter, and then, of course, the gospel, where we have Jesus exhorting us to love one another and also to keep God's commandments. So we, we need to say something about Father Keating's uh, statement that Easter is about three great theological ideas. God's light, God's life, and God's love. And today, we might be able to say that the readings are about God's life understood as the history of salvation that we read in the biblical witness, and we understand God's love as being embodied in the words of Jesus in John's gospel. And we can also say that God's light is present in these readings through The continued baptismal homily in 1 Peter. So today, Paul is uh, in territory different than normal. He is in Greece, in Athens, on the Areopagus, and he is preaching to the Greeks. And he uses as his starting place that he noticed that there was an altar in Athens that was dedicated to an unknown God. It didn't mean that the Greeks didn't know God. They just had a lot of gods, and they dedicated an altar to an unknown God, so they made sure they covered everything. Right? We got all the gods we know about, and the gods, the God that we didn't know about. So that may be something that will, that will help us. Let me just say this as a footnote, it doesn't really pertain to what Paul is talking about or any of the other readings, but, you know, the Greek gods in the classical period, and when we talk about them, uh, it isn't that they were remote from uh, the creation, and in fact they came down and played around or or, uh, assisted people under certain circumstances, And one of the notable things that Christian people came to understand was when the Greek gods came down, when Athena filled Achilles, or when uh, Telemachus was empowered to get up and speak before people when he was shy, the way they look when this happens is that they're all puffed up. All these people are all puffed up. Their locks are curlier, they smell better, they're taller. They're just completely different. They're not like themselves at all. And the difference between them and Jesus is that he was a regular guy. He was just like us. The remarkable thing about that is that there was no sort of puffing up or becoming different as the result of um, being infused with uh, God's nature with uh, being able to assist us in understanding that we are like him. We are not God, but our true self is God, as Father Keating says. And so in that way, it helps to understand what we mean when we speak about the divinity of Christ and we speak about the bodily resurrection and things like that. We're not speaking about some superhero who has arrived on the scene so in the book of Acts, Paul is struggling with how do I speak to the Greeks in categories that they will understand and not the Jewish categories that animate most of the Christian people who followed Jesus. And so he begins to rehearse to them a species of the history of salvation, not in the Jewish categories, but in categories that perhaps they can understand in terms of consulting their own their own uh, history and tradition, and also their poetry. And he tells them that you can see in this God's divine purposes at work. But I'm going to tell you now about somebody who who represents the definitive focus of the divine presence. The definitive focus of the new humanity and what this means. So we have Paul now laboring to talk about how God is working in everyone. The Apostle to the Gentiles, uh, understanding that God's message, the message of Jesus Christ, is not just for the people of the covenant, but it is God's invitation for all to come into God's saving embrace. And this is what we celebrate In 1 Peter, I've said this uh, through the Easter great 50 days, uh, most biblical scholars believe it is a baptismal homily. So in the early days, uh, it was uh, something that was preached or read uh, when baptism was celebrated, the sacrament of baptism. And Peter is speaking about this, and he is using (laughs) The uh, Jewish categories remember that uh, in early Christianity one of the words that's used to describe baptism is the Greek word photismus which means it to enlighten so God's light is present in this reading in terms of one of the great theological themes and Peter connects the dots. This is something I've become very interested in, and we don't talk about this enough. You know, it's very difficult when we read the Bible because it's in all these verses. You know, chapter 3, 16, you know, that kind of stuff. Uh, they, they weren't in the Bible until the Middle Ages. It was a text with no verses. You just read it continuously. So, it gave you the narrative character of the sacred text. And people who couldn't read, who were illiterate, were given this narrative in such a way as to be able to memorize it. And so in the Christian era, when we began to have people share their greatest place of safety and assurance with other people, they would be able to read this text or listen to this text and and memorize a few sentences or sections to use as they spoke to other people. So Peter is speaking to uh, in, in the sermon that he wrote, the homily that he wrote about baptism, and he talks about this. I love this passage from 1 Peter. God waited patiently in the days of Noah during the building of the ark in which a few, that is eight persons, were saved through water. And baptism, which this this prefigured, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So the story of Noah, which involves water and passing through the waters now is seen in Christian theology as a type of baptism. And we see this elsewhere in the Old Testament in the story of the people of Israel wandering in the wilderness and beginning to murmur and complain about Moses' leadership because they're afraid they're going to die of thirst and they won't have enough food. And so Moses uh, obeys God's instructions and he goes to a, to a rock and he hits it with the stick that he used to part the Red Sea and the water comes gushing out. And the description in the original language is that it's water that has no end. It comes from an, a, an underground spring that lasts for just like the story of the woman at the well with Jesus in John's gospel, the Samaritan woman. I have living water to give you And that goes back to the whole understanding in in the grand narrative of the Hebrew Bible about God's presence in the world, God's spirit. John's Gospel is part, today, what we read from John's Gospel, is part of what is known as the Farewell Discourse. It runs from about chapter 13 through about uh, the end of chapter 17, And we're sort of midway in this now and Jesus is saying goodbye to the disciples and the apostles. And he's telling them some things that they need to do and he's consoling them because he's telling them that he's not going to be physically here but he's going to send an advocate. The Father is going to send the Spirit to be present. Dr. Reginald Fuller who is was a great biblical scholar in the 20th century, died actually into the 21st century, but he was famous in the Anglican Church. He was an Anglican priest and a professor of New Testament. He said, Here's, here are the six parts of this section of the farewell discourse that make the following points. Love of Christ means obedience to his commandments. The promise of the paraclete, which is the old term, or counselor, sent by the Father in response to the prayer of the Son, through his prayer the counselor comes, the Spirit, whom the world cannot receive, will dwell in the community. The coming of the Spirit is equivalent to the return of the Son and almost completely fulfills The primitive expectation of the parousia. And what he means there when he says that is that the parousia in in, in its Greek word means arrival. It means an official visit. And we would also translate it as the second coming. And the Bible teaches that that's what's going to happen. There is going to be a time when we have the general resurrection, when God will finally put to rights all of the things that He is laboring through us to accomplish in the world. And we've talked about this too. So if you're where, where are the people that died that, that we love, that are not here now? They're safe with God in God's space, but are coming back. When are they coming back? I don't know. But they're coming back. That's what the promise of the scriptures is. And so we're talking about that now, that through the Spirit of God, almost everything has been fulfilled, because we have been given the tools to assist God in God's plan for the cosmos. The world will no longer see the Christ, but the community will, A, see him, and B, live because he lives, And see, Know the mutual indwelling of Christ with the Father and of Christ with the community. And this indwelling is a relationship of mutual love that includes obedience to Christ's commandments. So I want to say a word here about what we mean when we speak of Christ's commandments. You know, a lot of people think, well, what are the commandments? They're the Ten Commandments, right? Not the Ten Suggestions as some people say, and they're important, and they're part of the great tradition with a capital T. But here, we're talking not about a list of to-dos or to-don'ts, we're talking about two commandments. One is to love God, and the other one is to love each other, and that it is the Spirit of God and the presence of Christ that enables us to do this. In ancient Greece, the word, one of the words for love, the Greeks have five, one of the words for love was agape. And in, in ancient Greek, it really meant to love one another. But as we move into the Christian era, agape becomes m- more sharpened, and its meaning is uh, focused on selfless love the love that is loved without regard to the loveliness of the object towards which that love is directed. And by virtue of that, it's love that does not desire or expect a payback. Agape. I had a uh, a mentor for a few years when I was in Sausalito who was the rector for 35 or 40 years at Church of Our Savior in Mill Valley. And he said, in, in, in the best way I've ever heard it said, have you ever heard the this, this statement, um, you know, we're called to love everybody. We don't have to like everybody. We're called to love each other. And David, God will give you the tools and the ability to love the people you serve the Spirit will do this. And he was right. One of my colleagues here, who was in a colleague group with me until she retired, uh, we were talking, the group was talking one, one of the times we met about uh, difficult people in parishes. I know it's a rarity. <laughs> But, you know, the odd time that it occurs, uh, what, what, what do you do? How do you, how do you handle that? Or what are the processes that are involved with, you know, uh, getting rid of uh, resentments and difficulties? And she said, she was speaking about a difficult person in her own parish, and she said, one day we were sitting in the parish hall at some meeting or conference, and this person was there. And um, they were sitting in a location where the window, the light from the window, shone on their face. And their face was in repose. You know what I mean when I say that? It was at rest. And she looked at her and she said, you know, that is the way God sees her all the time. And I should remember that, you know. I thought it was very good. So the commandment... To love one another is important. Dr. Fuller says about this, The Christian life is not an external observance of Christ's commandments, but an intense relationship of the company, of the community, and the community's relationship to the three persons of the Trinity, each with a specific role to play in this relationship. This relationship is not mere emotion. It is concretely and soberly manifested in a life of obedience to Christ's commandment to love one another as I have loved you. The purpose of Jesus' farewell discourse is not to tell them that he will now be absent. It means that his presence is ever renewed through the coming of the Spirit to the community both personally and corporately. So in the next two or three weeks, we're going to talk a lot, a lot about how the Spirit renews itself in the community and how it continues to manifest itself both corporately and personally. So if you don't feel the presence of the Holy Spirit of God at this moment or haven't for a while, you will. And if, even if you don't, it's there. And the Church has fed on that energy and that power expressed for Episcopalians through the sacramental life, but also the community of faith who are seeking and yearning to be God's people in the world. So we'll have more to say about the Spirit in the next few weeks. In the meantime, give thanks for the presence of the Spirit of God in our lives and for its continuous renewing power. Amen.